We've got all of the Beatles songs. Let's cast the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton to play them. Wait, what? <laughs> Radio Drome. I'm Josh Hadley. It's post-Star Wars. We're in 1978, and strangely, there are no Star Wars ripoffs in this year, which is kind of bizarre. We'll have to wait for those, because trust me, they're coming. With me, as always, is Cecil wasn't even born yet, Trachtenberg. No, but the Star Wars things are coming soon. Yeah, because... Star Wars ripoffs. Roger Corman is busy. He's very busy right now. He's still got two years before Battle Beyond the Stars, because that was an expensive movie for him. Two million bucks. Oof. We'll talk about that in when we get to 1980, though. Right now, we're talking about 1978. Now, Peter won't be joining us this week, because he just moved into a new apartment, and he's getting his internet set up. He says in two weeks, he will be back for his actual, real return to the show. But right now, it's an internet issue only. So, before that, Guys, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME. Do that, and you will get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You'll get six free DVDs, a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping, all for using the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now, for 1978, Cecil, we're coming off of what Star Wars did. We're coming off of the pretty big year. I mean, Look at all the great movies that came out the previous year that we talked about last week. There were a slew of them. There's a lot of good movies coming out this year in 1978, but not as many key movies, which I think is kind of funny. After what Star Wars did, don't you think they would have Hollywood would have jumped on this immediately instead of taking till 1979 and 1980 to realize what they had in Star Wars? I mean, hell, by 1980, you had the actual Star Wars sequel, as well as all the ripoffs. Why do you think 1978 was almost devoid of the Star Wars knockoffs with one notable exception? Back then, uh, studios didn't work quite as quickly as they do now. The turnaround wasn't as fast. So a lot. it took them a while to really get that, uh, that slap in the face where it was like, hey, this made a whole lot of money. Maybe we should make a version kind of like it or green light uh, some things sitting on your desk that might fit into that. So, uh, you know, when Star Wars was just huge, they a lot of them were probably thinking that it was simply either a fluke or they just didn't really know how to handle it. Well, the market just wanted that at that time. You know, eh, we'll, we'll keep moving ahead with this other stuff that we have planned. And, and then when they saw that, uh, you know, sci-fi was really kind of taking off, then they started, you know, attaching and, and putting all their money into uh, uh, the the I don't want to say knockoffs, but the uh, the movies that came because of that. I mean, then later we had the knockoffs, but initially it wasn't uh, it wasn't just straight up knockoffs. Well, you did have one that was accused of being a knockoff. Now, in America, we didn't get this theatrically. In America, this was a TV pilot, but Battlestar Galactica came out this year. And the only reason I'm bringing that up, even because that's technically television, is Canada and Europe got it as a theatrical feature, which had a different ending than we got for the Battlestar Galactica three-hour pilot on ABC. Baltar gets his head cut off in the, in the movie version. 
Battlestar Galactica was absolutely a Star Wars knock. I don't consider it to be the plagiaristic one that George Lucas did. George Lucas sued Glenn Larson over Battlestar, saying that it's a complete ripoff of Star Wars, and really the story has nothing to do with Star Wars. The characters are not Star Wars stand-ins, and really the only thing is the whole space opera thing, so I don't consider Battlestar Galactica plagiaristic. I consider opportunistic, but not plagiaristic. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't think that uh, Battlestar Galactica is uh, is a knockoff. I think that, uh, like you said, it's opportunistic, but there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there are so many excellent features that came out because they got greenlit because something else uh, ended up being popular. If you wanted to get super duper technical, you could probably make the argument that the Cylons were the stormtroopers, but really they're they had the same like, aim. You know, yeah, the same name, which was not. I mean, that really was the only the thing. And they both took took place in space. I mean, if if anybody's going to get uh, nicked on uh, plagiarism, it would be Star Wars and uh, the hid, Hidden Fortress, is it? Yep, the, the Hidden Fortress. But see, hidden, w- yeah, w- one of the reasons that George Lucas thought it was plagiarism was because the special effects looked too close to, like, we discussed last week how Star Wars looked different than any other sci-fi thing that had come out at that time. Well, the reason Battlestar Galactica looked the same way was John Dykstra, the man who would win the Academy Award for the special effects on Star Wars, was the head special effects designer for Battlestar Galactica. I wonder why they look similar, huh? But then you had some other key movies. Obviously, we're going to look at a lot of the films from this year. But you had a couple other key linchpin movies come out this year that either started their own subgenres or really, really were something different. One, we had Dawn of the Dead come out from Romero. Imagine, if you will, that the most frightening things on Earth are about to come out of the darkness. They will look surprisingly like your neighbors, your friends your family this situation must be controlled before it's too late they are multiplying too rapidly now accept the fact that there's no escaping the awful consequences we've got to survive somebody's got to survive when there is no more room in hell the dead will walk the earth dawn of the dead they must be destroyed on sight there is nothing you can do to stop it it's too late it's already happening at a theater near you. Dawn of the Dead contains scenes of violence that may be considered shocking. No one under 17 will be admitted. Dawn of the Dead from United Film Distributing Company. Nobody was expecting a movie like this. Nobody was expecting something like Dawn of the Dead. Well, Dawn of the Dead, uh, it it wasn't uh, a big thing for me in, in the 70s because I wasn't around. But um, it was uh, – I actually didn't see it until the 90s. It blew me away because it was so – it was so different from Night of the Living Dead in the sense that it had, you know, Romero's style, but it was just these people. And really, it kind of turns into a little bit more of a character study. It's how they're getting along and how they're surviving. And it's going along the time period of them, you know, just living their lives, you know, are now within the mall. So it's like, well, they have everything that they need inside of there and they're just kind of living and getting by and they can't ever go outside or they're dead. 
So, it, but it but it was just kind of neat. And really, I love the movie. I, I think it's uh, it, one of, if not my favorite zombie film. But uh, it almost gets to a point where when uh, Savini and the biker gang shows up, I get mad because I almost would rather the movie just kind of go like I was enjoying the movie of just them in there surviving, uh, you know, dealing with the zombies and not having to uh, really go outside. And then once they busted in, the zombies poured in and all hell broke loose and they had to fight back. Uh, I mean, it, it gave the film a jump, you know, a shot in the arm. But it changed the dynamic of it and uh, it really pissed you off because it was like, you know, these people could have lived here the rest of their lives happily. And now uh, some of them are dead and it's all your fault, you freaking assholes. Well, Dawn of the Dead was key for a couple of other reasons, too, outside of the movie itself. And that was the movie itself completely independently financed a monster hit this thing made millions and millions of dollars on a very small budget that showed the studios a little bit right there but also the fact dawn of the dead started something it started not italian exploitation because you'd have the spaghetti westerns and stuff like that but it really because the movie being co-produced by dario argento gave the italians gave the italians much more of a stranglehold because you'll notice Italian exploitation took a turn at this point too, and I do consider Dawn of the Dead Italian exploitation because it kind of is. Before you would have the spaghetti westerns where you would have Italian crews, Italian directors shot in Italy with Italian money and U.S. casts for the you know for the main parts. Now you had American actors, American crews shot in America with Italian money. That would change how Italian exploitation, especially by people like Argento and, and Asinitis, would end up playing out in the next couple of years. And then you, you had another key film for people like us. I mean, you have Oscar-winning films like The Deer Hunter and whatnot coming out. But, I mean, that didn't change the industry and form its own genre. This year, we also have Halloween coming out, which is universally considered the beginning of the slasher genre. Yeah, you had movies like Peeping Tom and Texas Chainsaw prior to that. But really... Halloween is the beginning of the slasher genre, which from this point forward for the next four or five years is going to be a major force to be reckoned with. So you cannot overlook what Halloween did. Again, also, very low budget, made a ton of money. Do you notice something weird when, when we're talking about this, the 70s, which we won't be talking about as much when we get to the 90s? How many independent features beat the shit out of the out of some of the studio fare that was very much a 70s thing when you could have a movie like dawn of the dead or halloween really come out of nowhere the 70s kind of repeated a little bit in the 90s when we had the reintroduction of like uh, all the independent features because uh, I mean the 70s uh, I know Halloween uh, was I think 300,000 and uh, ended up just making millions of dollars and was the longest running um, independent, uh, you know, highest grossing independent film for years and years and years until it was beaten by the Blair Witch Project in the 90s, which Actually, was also it, 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 it was beaten. It was beaten by Friday the 13th two years later in 1980. And then Friday the 13th held that record until Blair Witch Project. And then in the 90s, you know, when we had Clerks and then um, you had uh, Blair Witch Project and a lot of other Pulp independent fiction. features that were coming along. Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, movies that were coming along that were fiercely original, that were uh, making uh, just a crap ton of money and were making the studios look 
terrible uh, by comparison because it's like, okay, here's these movies that are coming out that are unique. There's something fresh. They're giving the audience something that they want and they're obliterating these films that you're dumping tons of money into. You know, why aren't they, why aren't you looking more into this? And then what a lot of them did was they bought up the independent studios and, uh, and then they would shut them down. I saw Halloween out of order. Unfortunately, I saw Halloween two before I saw Halloween one. And uh, it it didn't taint anything for me, but it kind of uh, I would say it it didn't ruin. But uh, there was kind of the 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 mystery of one was a little bit overshadowed because you already knew with with two. And uh, but it was still it was cool. It didn't, uh, you know, negatively affect it, I guess. Well, there was one other independent film that also that also showed the studios that you don't exactly know what you're doing. Now, when I say independent film here, it was independent, but it's not. It was released by Paramount, and Paramount partially put up the completion funds, but it was essentially made independently, and that was Up in Smoke from Cheech and Chong. That movie also made a ton of money, and like I said, this one, it's kind of in the same boat as Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th was an independent film, but it's got the Paramount logo and was released wide, so you kind of go, well, is it still an independent film at that point? So you you, got to look it up in smoke. Was that an independent film or was that Paramount? I mean, really, when you break it down. Either way, an amazing film that kicked off what we think of as the stoner subgenre now, too. I mean, uh, it's still an independent film because the thing is, there's there's a difference between uh, production and distribution. There are a lot of films that, uh, you know, get made independently and then uh, they will go to film festival. I mean, now more they'll go to the film festival routes and whatnot, and they'll get picked up by a, a studio that will then distribute them. So just because a film gets picked up for distribution by a larger company doesn't immediately make it uh, no longer an independent film. The the movie was done independently it's just now more people are seeing it because it got wider distribution from a bigger company the last major linchpin film we got to talk about of 1978 was one that a lot of people probably forget was as big as it was in 1971 you had deep throat which was the first porno chic film the first porn film to go mainstream well this year we got debbie does dallas debbie does dallas i don't think people who weren't around then and, you know, I was young, so I didn't know this at the time, but going back, I don't think you guys realize just how big of a film Debbie Does Dallas was. Mainstream movie theaters were running this alongside reruns of Star Wars and Jaws 2. You guys don't understand how big Debbie Does Dallas actually was in 1978. It's funny because then, like, Debbie Does Dallas became that de facto um porno name it was either like, that or deep uh, throat if you're watching like night court or something and they needed a porno name it would always be kind of a play on debbie does dallas it would be like uh, Lindsay does lunch or it would always kind of be some sort of slight goof on that and the the movie uh became notorious for that i mean i had you know it had become like a joke amongst me and like my my friends for a long time before i actually uh saw it some sometime in the 90s i don't remember exactly and it was just funny because it's uh back from a time when porno had uh like an attempt at a story and it's just so silly and ridiculous and stupid and uh uh i mean debbie was was very pretty but uh the whole movie is just cornball you know 70s porno antics the fact that this hardcore porn was mainstream is what's i is what's what we have to look at 
I don't know how that happened, though. I mean, how because I mean, it, it started off playing from what I remember, uh, you know, didn't it start off playing in like the porno theaters and then it just ended up somehow ended up going into the mainstream? Some film distributor saw it and went, you know, because the movie has a lot of intentional comedy in it. It's essentially a pornographic sitcom, really. They saw a, a lot of the, the comedy and the characters and they were kind of like, you know what? This could work. You know, coming out in the wake of Animal House and whatnot, they're like, this could work. And then somehow they got theaters convinced to run it, which you would never get today. Oh, God, no. And I just mentioned Animal House, another huge film. Although, as we've discussed in previous episodes, I don't personally like the film. I don't think it's funny. I never have. But that also hit audiences really hard in 78. You don't think Animal House is funny? I've never found it to be funny. As, I've, as I, we discussed in the, in the other episode, I've, I couldn't follow these characters. These characters were all assholes. These characters were all terrible people, and I didn't like being asked to sympathize with them and follow them when they're really the villains of the piece, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's funny, but it probably would have been funnier had I had seen it uh, back in 78. Because it's one of those things that's been ripped off so many times. Like I, I recently did a video on the Evil Dead, and I had a couple of people that are like, "I don't, I just saw this, and I don't understand what the big deal is. It's so derivative of a bunch of other horror movies." And it's like, "Well, yeah, that's because every other horror movie in the past thirty-five years has ripped it off." So the same thing with uh, Animal House is that you know, ever since that came out, you know, uh, comedies and everything have ripped it off. So it's not going to be as funny as it was had you've seen it new back in 78 i still think it's funny i think uh, i don't mind rooting for the bad guys i recognize that they're supposed to be drunken frat idiots but it's there's something funny about it and there's something charming to it i mean it's kind of like um blazing saddles it's the old you know you could not really do this movie today and they tried to i guess the closest thing we had to animal house uh recently would as far as you know crude wise they did that with the hangover but the hangover was just god terrible not and unfunny i hated the hangover i just i I really don't think, well, I, I don't particularly think that Galifianakis is funny. And he kind of, to me, felt like they wanted him to be like a, a Belushi type character. And Belushi had a sort of charm about him, even though he was a scumbag. And uh, Galifianakis, to me, just felt like just a scumbag, just, just an asshole that wasn't funny. I think that uh, Animal House is still a funny movie. Uh, it's not something I could watch very often because it's been parodied and lampooned and the jokes aren't as fresh ah, as they lampooned. were. But Yeah, lampooned so many times, but uh, I, I still think that it deserves its place. Well, 1978 also brought us two key sequels, both of which I actually, cons I actually think are good films, even though they get shit on a lot. And that would be Damien, Omen 2, which... It's still a pretty good film, and it's not nearly as bad as its sequels would be. And Jaws 2, which as we discussed in the Jaws retrospective, obviously it's not as good as the first film. But it's still a pretty damn solid sequel. Uh, Damien is, is cool because it does a very good job of continuing the story, and it's creepy. It's just like uh, like the first one. It really does continue that vibe, and just it, it's a good uh, good horror film. Jaws two, 
think Jaws 2 is fine. I mean, I think, you know, 3, obviously, is when they really start to get bananas. Jaws 1 absolutely deserves its its place. It's an amazing film. But Jaws 2 is an incredibly solid sequel. It was shit on by critics in, in 1978, but it made so much money, Universal didn't care. But critics saw it as derivative, pointless, and meandering. The meandering part, I'll give you a little bit. The movie is a little overlong. It really could have used some trims here and there. Otherwise, I think it's a fun story, and yeah, it's ridiculous, but it's a killer shark, so how serious can you get? It could have, uh, it definitely, it could have been a whole lot worse, as we find out with uh, Jaws 4. Right, and now, speaking of Jaws 4, let's talk about Michael Caine. Now, this year, in 1978, Michael Caine came out with The Swarm. The ultimate suspense adventure, Irwin Allen's production of The Swarm, with an all-star cast. Michael Caine, Catherine Ross, Richard Widmark, Richard Chamberlain, Olivia de Havilland, Ben Johnson, Lee Grant, Jose Ferrer, Patty Duke Aston, Slim Pickens, Bradford Dillman, Fred McMurray, and Henry Fonda. Damn it! The Swarm is coming. The Swarm, rated PG, starts Friday at theaters and drive-ins everywhere. The Swarm is a swarm of killer bees rampaging across America, mutating, and becoming completely unstoppable. Until you've seen a group of military men in moon suits fighting killer bees with flamethrowers, you've not seen a damn thing. Michael Caine plays the lead scientist warning about the bees. Now here's the thing. I think The Swarm's a fine movie. I think it's fun. I think it's pretty decently made. It's got a fantastic cast. After he made Jaws the Revenge... Michael Caine said The Swarm is the only movie he ever regretted making. Maybe look at it from this perspective. He probably got two things out of Jaws the Revenge. Probably got a really nice paycheck and a very lovely vacation. So, because The Swarm, they were using real bees. So most likely people got stung a lot. I mean, that was back in the day when, you know, they wouldn't do CGI. You know, they couldn't because it wasn't it wasn't a thing. So people probably got stung all over the place. So, I mean, unless he might have just gotten stung a whole bunch of times, it might have just been a miserable shoot. I mean, there are more things that kind of factor into why somebody might regret doing a certain film than just the quality of it. Because I just look at it and I'm like, Swarm's a fun movie and also a ballsy movie. They kill an entire elementary school of kids with bees on camera. Try that in a mainstream movie today. Yeah, not happening. So then that you've also got Superman came out this year. The first, I mean, there had been, you know, Fritz the Cat that had come out prior to this, which was a comic book movie. The first mainstream comic book movie and it was a huge hit and while superman 2 3 and 4 get more and more ridiculous as they go along superman was a damn solid film superman is is amazing it's still one of the best uh superhero films because it is a incredibly complete story I mean, they start at the very beginning. They go through, uh, you know, Kal-El, war, you know, making his way to Earth and his, uh, you know, his youth and growing up with his parents and just eventually going to um, Metropolis. And it, it's just it's so grand. They do just an incredible job of encompassing this very big story and fitting it all into the time period and never 
really making it feel dull, never slowing down, never feeling like you're you're getting too much of an info dump. I mean, every now and then they would interject with a little bit of action here and there. Uh, the effects at the time were revolutionary. And Christopher Reeves just nails it. Uh, he you does will such a good job. A man, you will believe a man can fly. Remember, that was the tagline. He did such a great job of doing the duality of playing Clark Kent, you know, this big oaf. And then as soon as the glasses came off, bam, he was Superman. It was just a, an awesome film. I, I love the original Superman. With the exception of the ending. I don't like the whole flying around the world to reverse time. I think that's goofy, but I'm willing to forgive it because the rest of the film is really damn good. Yeah, it, it is very silly, but I mean, I, I saw that sometime in the 80s and, uh, you know, younger me, it seemed, you know, OK, that's perfectly all right. And it was a it was a very cool effect of him flying around the world and then him spinning backwards and, you know, uh, talking to Mar you know, Marlon Brando, yelling at him. And uh, then, you know, and then all the effects, like uh, everything kind of fixing itself and it, corny. Yes. But you're also watching a movie about an alien from another planet that now has like superpowers because of our sun. You know, so I, I kind of give it a pass. It, I would have um, I, I am curious as to how it would have done if it would have ended up the way that it was supposed to, like how a lot of two was supposed to go into one and vice versa. Uh, the aliens uh, were supposed to show up and then he ended up sending them back to the Forbidden Zone and that whole thing. And Phantom Zone. So uh, Phantom Zone, rather. Yeah, it would have been uh, it would have been interesting. But, you know, that's not what we got. And then we ended up getting two and then we ended up getting the Dick Donner cut of two year, you know, years and years later. I, I think that it still holds up, silly ending and all. Speaking of silly, this being the 70s, we can't overlook some of the more experimental films that came out in 1978. Some of these films are so 70s, they could have only come out in the late 70s. The bad news bears go to Japan. You've also got, like, the astral factor. Astrology I, was a was a you know an astral projection and all that. That was a really big thing in the 70s. Not so much by the time the 80s came out, but Astral Factor was a pretty decent flick. A film I think peters out at the end. An amazing film for the first three quarters. That is a very 70s concept. Have you ever seen Capricorn One? You know I never have actually. Capricorn, surprisingly, Capricorn One is more people view it today because of one of its cast members. O.J. Simpson is one of the cast members, but it's also got James Brolin, Elliot Gould, Sam Waterston, and Hal Holbrook. Written and directed by Peter Himes, it's about NASA faking a Mars landing and then attempting to kill the astronauts that they faked the landing with to keep them quiet. And then Elliot Gould is a journalist who stumbles upon all of this, and it's a very late 70s, awesome little, I, I, awesome little crime thriller journalistic we got to tell the truth piece and it's way better than it probably should be like i said it peters out at the end but other than that i think capricorn one's a great movie and weirdly enough a remake would actually fit into today's market wouldn't it i mean you know sadly though i mean as much as i am not a, a fan of uh, of remakes every now and then something like that does make sense but i don't know i mean uh, i i i have to uh i have to check this one out I've been meaning to check. It's one of those movies that's kind of fell through the cracks. Speaking of 70s hooey, we've got The Fury, the Brian De Palma film, which somehow is boring as hell. It's a movie about twins with psychic abilities 
and yet you're constantly looking at your watch going, are we only 20 minutes into this thing? Brian De Palma is a fine director. I'm not crapping on Brian De Palma, but there's no energy in this movie at all. The Fury is just bland. Then you've got a film that I applaud it for what it was trying to do, but holy crap. We talked about Ralph Bakshi and Wizards last week about how great that was. Oh my god, did he screw up Lord of the Rings. His half-animated, half-live-action Lord of the Rings movie is a train wreck. You have to have seen this one, right? Believe it or not, I have only seen about the first half hour of it. And I don't and it was a long time ago. I just remember uh, how at the time I knew nothing about Lord of the Rings. I just knew that it was an animated film and my sister had rented it and uh, we had watched it. And I was like, what the hell? I don't understand any of this. And uh, and I since saw part of it. Um, but I really, really, really have never seen the entire thing. It's not very good. He, he he was trying to do something really unique. He was going to tell the Lord of the Rings movies in two movies. This movie was Lord of the Rings plus the first half of The Two Towers, and then the next movie, which never got made, would be the second half of The Two Towers and Return of the King. So this movie is not even a complete film. Part live action, it's part animated, and then it's part rotoscoped which I guess if you were high in the late 70s would be awesome. When you look at this on video, you just kind of, it feels like an unfinished film because that's kind of what it is. He ran out of money. They basically made him put it out. It is kind of an unfinished film and it feels like it. On the other hand, we talked about, you mentioned remakes. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978, the Philip Kaufman, Donald Sutherland, Leonard Nimoy movie. I like it better than the original. It's one of the few remakes I think is better than it, than the original film. I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, although not technically a remake, Philip Kaufman says it is technically a sequel, is is an amazing movie of what, 70s paranoia. It very much still captures, since we're still in the Cold War at this point, the 50s paranoia transplanted to the 1970s along with the self-help, you-are-what-you-feel nonsense. Oh, Invasion 78 uh, is just amazing. It, uh, I think one of the reasons why it succeeds so well is because it's from a time when remakes were being made because they made sense. Now, uh, when remakes are made, it's basically, well, that movie was a success once. Uh, let's update it now. And they they kind of don't see why the original was such a success. Back then, it was like, we can take uh, this movie and maybe put a different spin on it or uh, do it with uh, today's effects or add some kind of different angle or cover something that maybe they weren't able to do in the original one. So uh, with, with this, like you said, it's kind of a remake slash sequel. And it works because uh, the effects are amazing. They still look great. You've got an amazing cast you've got a great story you've got them playing off of the paranoia of the time the whole thing just gels perfectly and uh the first one it deserves it's no i've been saying this a lot it deserves its place and it is a great paranoia film it's a very good film from the 50s but the 70s one just takes the concept and just really drives it home and does a great job with it and Philip Kaufman does an amazing job making this film feel super claustrophobic. As Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright, as Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, Donald Sutherland, and Brooke Adams, because oh, they all know Leonard Nimoy has been possessed at this point. 
as they're running for their lives and looking for help and running into nothing but pod people, you feel, due to his direction, the lighting and the tightening of the camera angles, how their world is shrinking and just how much trouble they're actually in. It's a very claustrophobic film, yet it takes place in the middle of a wide open city. That's a very hard thing to achieve, and Philip Kaufman did it expertly. Well, that's what happens when you uh, have a really good director and you give them the scope and ability to, to do, all right, here, here's the movie you want to make, you know, make it. You know, they're not breathing down his throat. They're actually allowing the movie to get made properly. And, you know, just on a side note, how often does Leonard Nimoy play a freaking villain? Well, twice that I can think of. I know, but, but it was here, just... Here in Mirror Universe, uh, Leonard Nimoy. No, because, nope, Mirror Spot came around. And remember, on Deep Space Nine, we found out he actually caused the collapse of the Alliance. So, look at it from a 70s perspective. Star Trek is killing it in ratings. And Mr. Spock's the bad guy? For experimenting, you also had a director that was pretty much at the end of his career at this point. He was taking anything he, he could get. I think a lot of people forget Sam freaking Peckinpah made Convoy in 1978. The film with no story and nothing but a bunch of car crashes. Honestly, Hell Needham could have done this movie much better. Do you see any Sam Peckinpah in Convoy? The only thing I know about Convoy is the song. Of course. Then speaking of Hal Needham, we mentioned it last week, Hooper came out this year. Yes, Hooper is awesome. Hooper, if, I mean, on top of Burt Reynolds just being, uh, yet, you know, one of his pinnacle Burt Reynoldsians movies, Hal Needham's directing in this is just so freaking good. And the ending where it's the uh, car just driving around the set and doing this just ridiculous stunt sequence is amazing. It's incredible. I mean, it's almost the whole movie's good, but that last half hour or so is just unbelievable. It's so freaking good. I mean, it's just a great movie. Cooper is a very overlooked film because it never achieved the box office success or the mainstream recognition that the Smoking the Bandit films did. And I think a lot of people need to see Hooper. Hooper, for those that don't know, is also a glimpse into the stuntman angle of Hollywood movies, literally and figuratively in this movie. You also had another experimental film which didn't work at all. We can't not talk about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, you can. I've never actually. I respect the Beatles, but I don't particularly like them. I don't like the Beatles either. But even as a non-Beatles fan, this movie's a disaster. The only thing it has going for it is Alice Cooper as a villain and Aerosmith as the evil heavy metal band. Oh, wow. No idea. So, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, I don't know who got the bright idea. We've got all of the Beatles songs. Let's cast the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton to play them. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm not joking. Wow. All right. Now you have I have no idea. It. Now you have to see it, don't you? I'm curious, but is there a way I can get rid of the Beatles songs? It's not I don't, the Beatles I don't version. Need to... it's, it's the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton singing the Beatles songs. If that helps huh. or hurts, I don't know if that's better or worse. Uh, well, it'll be different. I mean, I've already heard them all a bajillion times, so... We also had the very experimental Western come out this year, China 9, Liberty 37, a very unique Western from Italy and Spain, but with American, but written by Americans and produced by Americans. 
it, it's really weird, but you got the gorgeous Jenny at Goddard, you got Warren Oates. China 9, Liberty 37 is something you got to check out. This was a big year for radio. And what I mean is radio in the movies. Because you have American Hot Wax coming out in 1978, which is a very a very wrong biopic of Alan Freed that very much whitewashes the, some of the crap he did, but it's still a great film whether it's accurate or not. You also have Gary Busey just stealing the Buddy Holly story. And then you've got the, the, amazing, the amazing anti-establishment FM come out this year. It was kind of a weird year for radio in the movies. Have you seen any of them? No. Um, I remember uh, I watched like a tiny bit of American Hot Wax because uh, it was on cable one time and I thought it was going to be I thought it was going to be something more like hard bodies. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so you you thought it was going to be Canon's hot T-shirts and not. not yes. A, and not not Alan Freed's biopic. huh? Yes, I was very disappointed. <laughs> I wanted boobies. I was expecting boobies, and I'm like, why is this all serious? This sucks. It's all about records and payola, man. What the hell? Well, American Hot Wax, I'm thinking, and no, I was wrong. (laughs) I highly recommend the movie FM. It's a very 70s movie, for one, about how powerful radio is, but also the anti-Vietnam stance it takes. It's basically a rock radio station that gets bought by new owners who want to put pro-America in Vietnam propaganda on their station. All the DJs and the staff of the station take it hostage as a protest against Vietnam. It's a very 70s movie, but it's a really good movie with an amazing soundtrack. We all love Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood and a monkey. How do you go wrong? Every which way but loose. Movies are really fun. It it is uh, started that whole man and his monkey thing because didn't uh bj and the bear come after this and it'd be uh, right around the same time on tv yeah right runs but it was every every which way but loose i think uh if i'm not mistaken i think i saw every which way but loose and every which way you can as like a double feature at like a drive-in movie theater right turn collide so i haven't seen them in a very long time but i remember really enjoying them because you know how can you not enjoy pissed off Clint Eastwood and a monkey and uh and then uh, I very I remember BJ and the bear more as a reference than an actual it was a it was a TV show Jackie Chan came to America drunken master although I'm sure myself included we all saw the dubbed version which probably didn't help things you know what I really should watch the uh the subbed version of uh of drunken master but uh, I've seen uh I've seen Drunken Master 2, and actually it was really cool when, because uh, Drunken Master 2 uh, got probably <sighs> sometime in the mid 2000s that got released into theaters. So that was awesome seeing, uh, you know, a, a really younger Jackie Chan in theaters. I was loving that for a while where they were doing that after the success of uh, Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah, the Drunken Master, like seeing Jackie Chan uh, when he was at his prime is just amazing. The guy is, is I mean, even even now watching like a police story, uh, the later ones, he's still phenomenal. But back then he was just so ridiculously limber and the stunts were uh, beyond anything that they could ever even attempt to achieve in Hollywood. We still have exploitation going on and we have one of the weirder exploitation movies. Have you seen The Wiz? I saw The Wiz a long time ago when it was on television. 
late 80s, I think, maybe early 90s. So I don't really remember much beyond Ease On Down the Road, whatever song Michael Jackson sang, because that was really the only reason I watched it was because I was like, Michael Jackson's in this. And, uh, you know, he was the scarecrow. The Wiz was a surprisingly upscale black exploitation version of The Wizard of Oz. Literally, Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, and Nipsey Russell are moving on down the road, the yellow brick road into the ghettos of New York with an all-black cast, and so it's kind of a retelling of The Wizard of Oz, and this is the way it's worded on the DVD from a black perspective. I didn't think it was that good of a movie. I mean, it, it doesn't work. Sidney Lumet coming off of Network it just doesn't have his flair. I love black exploitation movies. We've discussed ton of them, tons of them on the show, Cecil. This one, I don't know. Th- this one seems more interested in the music than it does in being a compelling film. And that's fine if you're making an album. But when you're making a film, you need to actually make a compelling film and not just have great music in it. But it seemed more like just capitalistic. You know, they were they were taking uh, taking something like The Wizard of Oz and, uh, you know, making it for a different audience. Probably one of the best exploitation films of the of 1978. Joe Dante's Amazing Piranha came out this year. Piranha, the film that even Joe Dante says is not a ripoff of Jaws. It's absolutely a capitalization of Jaws. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't see uh, this one again, again until uh, probably sometime in the 90s. And uh, I saw it. I saw Piranha 2, The Spawning, first, because I thought it was hilarious that you had flying piranhas. And then I went back and watched the original. Were you disappointed that that part, that the first one's a comedy? No, I wasn't disappointed because by that point, I had already, I was already aware of Joe Dante after uh, like Gremlins and stuff. So I knew more of what I was in in for, like after seeing like the burbs and stuff. I'm like, okay, this is going to be more silly. And it was, it was great. I actually, uh, I, I thought it was a lot of fun and uh, funny and uh, I actually enjoy the remakes which are really you know not quite so remake I mean it's another ones where they take just the initial ideas it's like all right well there's piranhas and they're killing people and uh, it kind of went and did different stuff with them so uh, I I like all of the piranha movies have you seen the 1995 one where Punky Brewster gets edited I did not know there was a 1995 one with uh, Salil Moonfry. <laughs> yes. Uh, was this pre? Was this pre or post boob job? I well, think, or should I say boob boob reduction? Yeah, I, I can't remember, but I know she was super hot in it. I, t- I was incredibly disturbed at how attracted I was to her. Like, she was in some really terrible movie. Pumpkinhead with, 2, um, Flood Wings. There was this movie where she, like, uh, she didn't get naked, but she, like, was was fiddling. She was diddling herself. And, uh, I was, um, oh, is it Mind Games? I think it's Mind Games. Mind Games, she's a, um, she's a student who becomes uh, obsessed with her teacher. She's in college. And she was really cute in that. And uh, I was shocked because I'm watching it. And then I found out, I'm like, oh, my God, that's Punky Brewster. (laughs) And and it's like, gee, look at like, where did those boobs come from? Jesus. The last movie we're going to talk about individually is another Corman flick, Death Sport, with David Carradine also came out this year. A mess of a film. Even its director says this film has no reason to exist. Post-apocalyptic sort of and he's sort of playing Kwai Chang Kane, and then 
there's sort of a Death Race 2000 vibe, and then there's sort of motorcycle fighting, and there's sort of lightsabers, and sort of barbarians, and I said sort of a lot because all of this stuff is there, but doesn't have any reason to be, so that's why sort of. It's a post-apocalyptic movie. Of course I've seen it. I agree with you, though. It's uh, not a particularly good movie. There's a lot of sort of ridiculous things that happen. Just feels completely all over the place. David Carradine is probably on some sort of controlled substance throughout the film. He just does not seem... Like he particularly wants to be there and uh, the sword fighting and or should I say like lightsaber fighting and motorcycle stuff and all that. It's just a very weird movie that more than likely I'll probably do a video on someday because, you know, I I have to. It's more of a 1978 curiosity than it is anything else. We're going to finish off by looking at, as we have in all of these year retrospectives, the top highest grossing films. The number one highest grossing film of 1978 is a film I'm sure a lot of people have been screaming, what about this one? What about this one? No, I hate Grease. It's a god-awful film, and if I never have to watch it again, I'll still have seen it too many times. This film sucks, but Grease was the number one box office film of 1978. It's uh, it's entertaining, and uh, I have always uh, had a soft spot. In uh, the late 90s, when they had the Grease Mega Mix, when Grease kind of became cool again for a little while. Yeah, the 90s uh, had that weird 50s cyclical thing. Yeah, where, uh, you know, people were doing the jump, jive and whale and swing became popular again and all, you know, all that kind of stuff was going on. That was a little annoying. So that kind of maybe knocked it down a little bit. But I don't blame the movie for that. I've always uh, I've always thought that Grease was a lot of fun. I've never liked it. But then number two, Superman. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. Number three, National Lampoon's Animal House. You know, for a film that only cost a couple of million bucks, making $120 million in 1978 is a pretty big hit. That's kind of a big deal. Every Which Way But Loose. And we got Heaven Can Wait, meh, Hooper, which is kind of surprising that Hooper was as big of a hit as it was, considering how relatively unknown it is today. Jaws 2, Dawn of the Dead, Revenge of the Pink Panther, and The Deer Hunter. I guess we probably should talk about The Deer Hunter a little bit. Yes, it won tons of Oscars, and it's, it's, you know, a linchpin Vietnam film, and it is. It's a very good film. I just don't think it was really, you know, it was, maybe I saw it too young. It, It didn't grab me the way other Vietnam films did. Well, Deer Hunter introduced me to, um, Russian Roulette. That's the first time I ever, I had no idea what Russian Roulette up to that point was. And uh, I like The Deer Hunter. It is a very depressing movie. But um, a lot of movies that kind of are serious, that revolve around Vietnam, usually they kind of end up going a little too serious. This one, I think it's a very well done movie. It's very well acted. It's very well directed. Uh, It's depressing as all hell. And it kind of shows a lot of the atrocities of war. And it's not something that I have any interest in watching again anytime soon. But I think that it is a very good movie. I want to point out some of the films we didn't talk about. Some of the ones that we, we, we just, the last couple of these that we did, people are like, oh, you forgot to mention this film. You forgot to mention this film. So I'm going to mention some of the ones our audience is going to go, no, this was from 78. Warlords of Atlantis. Yeah, good film. It Lives Again. Yeah, good film. Eyes of Lara Mars. Mm-hmm. All right, film. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. I love the movie. 
the animated Watership Down, which is just a depressing as fuck film. You talk about Deer Hunter being depressing. Oh God, yeah, Watership Down. It really, it's it's fantastic. I think it's wonderful. But yeah, you really just, uh, if you want to get depressed, watch Watership Down. So looking at 1978 from a 2016 perspective. I say that this is not as big of a year as 1975 or 1977 was. We're going to see something weird happening here. The odd-number years are the key years, where the even-numbered years are the more exploitative following years. You're going to see that when we get to 1979. It's another key year. Then 1980, not so much. Then 1981, and so forth, until we get to 1982. Do you think it's a weird thing that they would do this every other year kind of thing, where 1975, huge year. 1976 was all catch-up. 1977, huge year. 1978, all catch-up. 1979, huge year. 1980, catch-up. Is that what Hollywood, is that an encapsulation of what Hollywood was like at the time, or is that just a coincidence we're noticing looking back? I think it's more of just a coincidence. You know, there there are trends that you end up noticing uh, at when you're looking at things from a broader perspective. And I think that uh, as they were happening, nobody was looking at it. But now that you, you know, years have passed and you can kind of go back and look at it. I think that it's just uh, it's just a very long, odd coincidence. How would you put 1978 as a year in film? Was it as obviously I don't think I think I'd be safe to say we could agree it's not as good of a year as 77 was but was it still a good year overall for film i wouldn't say that it was as big as 77 but i mean i think that it's still a very solid year i mean we've had you know two incredibly revolutionary films if if there was nothing else that uh, didn't come out we had halloween and superman two huge movies that are still influencing things today so I think that uh, it can't be discounted just because uh, it wasn't as monumental a year as 77 was. And see, I, I just think that this was more of the, the studios looking at 1977 and going, we got to try and emulate that. Because that's what you see in a lot of this. You see a lot of sequels and you start to see remakes and the knockoffs. This was a big year of emulation. And, and, and that really does scream desperation, even if a lot of the product turned out to be really good. Emulation is desperation. 1978, where could Cecil have been found? They could find me uh, at not the internet because it's not invented yet. And you uh, aren't invented yet. I was not invented yet, but you could find me thinking about being invented uh, over at the escape at escapistmagazine.com as well as goodbadflix.com and uh, Facebook and Twitter. Maybe your dad saw Debbie Does Dallas and decided to ha- decided to accidentally make you. Was Flesh Gordon, I believe, was the uh, was his movie of uh, was his porno of choice. It's pro- that is probably partially responsible for me. <laughs> Whether in 1978, if you time travel, or more accurately in 2016 at 1201beyond.com. You can contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. And since I was alive at this point, I would say Deep Throat was probably the the porno that got my parents to make me. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.